Well, hey, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I just want to reiterate, um, I'm really excited about that class that's coming up that Rob's going to be teaching. Um, uh, it's really good content, and it really is trying to align with uh, those dreams that we have in the hallway. The, um, one of the things that we identified um, as we gathered um, as leaders this year was just the need to offer more opportunities to like give you guys the training and like the outfitting for the mission that you've said you want to be on. In particular, you're you're a member here and you've said like, "Hey, I'm all in on proclaiming the gospel for for to our city and to myself." Um, this class is huge in that, and so I really would encourage you. Um, it's like Troy said, it's just a three three week commitment um, over the course of five weeks because we're gonna have in between weeks in there for you like practice and read. Um, uh, the book content is great, um, but like Rob has really written content for this class um, that then that book supplements really well. And so we're, it's I, I don't know I'm really just excited and like proud of Rob for what he has prepared with that and just want to encourage you uh, to think about giving some of your time to it. Because I know that your time is precious. I know uh, that, that it can feel like one more thing on the calendar. And so that's why, like, we want to make this fun. Like, we want to make it enjoyable to be with other people. We want to uh, help you and take that barrier away with childcare. Um, and we'll probably have some snacks because, like, nothing motivates you people like a Ritz cracker. Um, so... Um, man, I just, I, I want you to take part in that. And, um, if cost is a barrier to that, even beyond that, like, discount code, which lasts for a week, you don't need a code. It's just a discount. Troy really wanted to be like, enter code Rob, just because he's not here this morning, uh, to make him feel weird. But um, it'll just take that money off right off the top. But, like, if cost is an issue, let us know. Like, we will not let that to be a barrier to you taking part in it. Um, we just want to make it available to as many people as possible. Um... Pergamum. Um, I, my, my thing says introduction blank, and so I thought, well, I'll just talk about the class a little bit more to fill that time. But um, I, I think my intro is blank because I feel, um, yeah, kind of daunted by, like, thinking about this passage that we just read and, and how strongly I think it applies to the situation in which we find ourselves today. And so we're just going to jump right into the text. Uh, but I do want to pray for one more minute um, together here um, that, that God would help us to hear this text that God would help us to uh, do what those in Pergamum did well, um, and, and that he would really help us uh, to, like, caution against the sin that he identifies there, because I think it's one that we find ourselves at great risk with. So would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, as we are confronted by your word this morning, God, as maybe um, it makes us feel nervous, God, as, as the language maybe feels strong, God, as the word pictures in and it may be difficult, um, God, I pray that you would help us to so wholeheartedly embrace who you call us to be in Jesus that we would run from the sin that would detract from our relationship with him. That, God, you would help us to uh, see the truth in this passage Pray that it would magnify who you are as we know it will, but then we pray that we would receive that and lean into the work that you're doing. I pray this in your name. Amen. Verse 12 says this. This is chapter 2 in the book of Revelation, if you're following along uh, in a physical Bible. Uh, it says, Write to the angel of the church at Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Uh, if you've been here the past couple weeks, you've probably picked up on this kind of formula 
for the first uh, line of every single letter uh, that John records from Jesus to these churches. Uh, uh, first, we get like who it's addressed to, and then we get um, one um, of those pictures of who Jesus is uh, that is distinct that, that Jesus wishes to communicate to that church. Uh, here's a picture of who I am uh, and how that's going to apply to the words that he has to say to them. Uh, so we are talking about Pergamum this week, uh, this third city, uh, or this third letter uh, written to this city in the ancient Near East, in that same peninsula. If you remember that map from the first week, uh, this is the next stop on it. Pergamum um, was known for a few things. Number one, it was a really strong uh, military base for the empire. It was uh, a powerful military city where, where lots of resources had been fortified uh, all around this idea of strength. But not only was it kind of a fortress towards military power, um, it was known to be a place that was a haven for knowledge and for books. It's one of like where the first and like largest uh, uh, libraries was built. Uh, it it was a place that was known for making uh, parchment. That word Pergamum, the way it's uh, directly uh, written, uh, kind of helps evolve into that uh, term for parchment in the Greek language. And they were known for making parchment there, for producing books, and then for having these havens uh, of, um, of books. Um, and like, this is something we all have to like remember when we think about uh, uh, times before now is like books were pricey, rare and were prized, right? Um, I'll put this in terms you can understand. Remember Beauty and the Beast, right? No, everybody's like, oh no, right? Troy's like, yeah, Disney! Um, so like whether it's the Emma Watson thing or the animated girl, uh, like she is stunned by the books. Like they were a symbol of wealth even in the time period um, in which that piece was written as an original fairy tale. Um, this was even more true in this time. Books were extremely sought after. They were wealthy. It was a, a marker of society's um, kind of lofty knowledge that was something that, like, the Greeks and the Romans liked to give assent to. Um, along with that knowledge and that, and that kind of book smart that existed in Pergamum, there was a, a kind of an underbelly of that, of a large amount of religious plurality and, and kind of new age type, what we would call like new age type thinking around like uh, the healing powers of knowledge and different like divinities. Uh, some of them uh, like maybe you think about, if you're familiar with this term, like old like animistic, but like applying those to like uh, those like, um, characteristics and powers to different deities and kind of worshiping broadly all across the front. But because of their strong military power, that religious and, and knowledge sect, what happens in Pergamum is it becomes, like many of these cities, and you're probably hearing a theme, it becomes a center of this movement for the worship of Rome and, and its emperors, which were treated as deities. We'll talk a lot more about that in a few moments. But so Pergamon was an important city, as all of these were, and it had these characteristics of being a haven for knowledge, of being religiously pluralistic, of being a powerful military city. And so this leads to then the picture uh, that is given of Jesus to the people of Pergamon, where it describes him as the one who has the sharp, double-edged Sword. Uh, what is this a picture of? Uh, the sword was a picture in the Roman Empire of righteous and divine judgment. 
Uh, it was a picture of the ability of the Roman sect to say what went and to enforce it swiftly. And in their culture, that was seen as pretty uh, uh, unable to be refuted. You could not argue with the judgment of the empire. What they said went, and if you went against it, the sword was what you would receive. And so what Jesus wishes right off the bat to communicate to the people at Pergamum is that ultimately it is not the Romans who are the judges of truth, religion, and power that is wielded. It is Jesus himself. This is the message that Jesus wishes for them to receive, is that they would ponder this question, who ultimately is the one who will judge? Who is the one who holds the power to define what is right and wrong and to divide between those things? And that's where I think some of the content of this this week is going to be extremely important for us uh, as a body living in the time in which we live, is that we live in a time where it is really, really hard to decide who gets to call what what. It is really hard living in this moment to decide in our culture who gets to say what is right and wrong. How do we define these things and where do we ultimately give allegiance as to who gets to provide definitions around issues of morality and even just wisdom in decision making? The reality is that much like the Romans controlled and judged what was permissible, as opposed to Jesus for the believers at Pergamum, often our culture we treat as if it is the judge. Living in an era in which opinions are put in front of us day in and day out, living in an area where there is no higher cachet uh, than to be one who is self-contained and approved by others, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, right? What is the champion of American culture right now? It is the rugged individual who never makes a mistake. It is as unobtainable a religion as any you could ever imagine. To be perfectly tolerant and yet perfectly confident. To be offending no one but bold and loud. To possess all and yet to never have anything that anyone else couldn't access. We often behave as if culture is our judge. And so I think as we get to the further words in this, we must ponder throughout this, who is the one who gets to call the lines in my life if I call myself a follower of Jesus? Now, the people at Pergamum, and, and, and I think for many of us, they, they weren't getting it all wrong. And so he has some positive things to say that I think are also important for us to hear. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13 uh, reads as this, he says, um, I, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. 
Uh, he, he describes these people as living in the house of Satan. He says, I know where you live. And when I first read that, I was like, is that threatening? Like, I know where you live, man. No, it's not like that. He's saying, hey, hey, I recognize the situation you're in. And so I want you to hear this. Like, as we even, maybe we're running too fast at this, but as we start to almost immediately apply this to our situation, in our culture, in your life, in your work, uh, with your family, in your school, Jesus says, hey, hey I know where you live. He says, I know. I know the culture in which you are a part of. I know where your house is. Uh, the, the word here that's used for, for live uh, implies not that like he knows like where they are for the moment, but they have lived here for a long time. He says, hey, I know that your life is tied here. He says, I know you have family here. I know you've built your home here. I know your business is here. I know your relationships are here. He says, I know where you live, and I know it is right in the heart of Satan's throne. Now, what, what is he talking about there? Um, often in the book of Revelation, uh, we're, we're doing this kind of two or even three-part thing as we point to, like, Satan, okay? One, we are talking about the literal statement, Satan. This is a book uh, that does describe future prophecy in some points, where it talks about what will ultimately happen and, and the kingdom of the devil which exists in, in reality. So sometimes we are talking about the literal Satan uh, in the future coming to destruction, uh, sometimes we're talking about way in the past. And we talk about uh, Babylon. We talk about this Old Testament city that was, was a testament to people trying to attain as much power as possible. But, but on both fronts, we also sometimes in this period are talking about the Roman Empire. And I think this is a situation in which he is specifically speaking to the moment in which these people are living. He's saying, hey, I know that your whole lives have been built right here in almost a capital of the empire. I know that you are living right in the heart of this place where everything is pushing on you to worship something other than Jesus. The power of the imperial cults in Pergamum was extremely high. And they were living right in the middle of it. Their homes were in the center of this city. They did life there. Their kids played there. They learned there. They went to work there. And what Jesus says to them is, he says, I know where you live. And I think that's filled with compassion and empathy. He says, I know where you live, and I know that you have not denied my name, even in the days of Antipas. Now, now who was Antipas? And this is an interesting one. No idea, right? We have no idea, right? Um, like, seriously, I read, like, as many commentaries as I could find. Like, does anyone have insight? And they're all like, yeah, we just don't know. Like, we can make stuff up, but we don't know who he was. But what I think is interesting is that Jesus knew who he was, and he was significant enough to the people in Pergamum that his death for the sake of Jesus' name, I think, rocked their community. Uh, what began to happen in the Roman Empire was this. Uh, the cult of the Roman Empire started in this way. Um, after Julius Caesar, who's probably like, you can probably name, how many, this will be a fun game, how many Roman Empires can you name? Should we do it for a second? All right, we got Julius Caesar. Who else? Michael? Nero, good. Any others? Come on, people. Augustus? Kind of. Uh, that name gets thrown on quite a few Caesars, which was kind of before we get to the Empire era, but I'll, I'll take it. Any other? 
about like Domitian. Okay, we'll move on, okay? <laughs> well, here's what happens. Um, after Julius Caesar uh, passes and, and his son moves into power, something really interesting happened in Rome that, that like is crucial to our understanding of these letters. Um, it is that the son of Julius Caesar made this decision uh, that, that his dad, Julius, would be deified. Okay? They began to build statues to Julius Caesar. And, and what this did is there became this public belief that the deity of the, the previous empires would begin to be passed down to each emperor after Julius Caesar. And what was interesting about this is, is they thought it was actually kind of bad form to ask people to worship you. We've gotten over that in our culture, right? We're like, no, worship me. Look at my follower count, right? We're like, no, that's a little... That's a little off. So what they thought is what we'll do is we'll, we'll worship the spirit of the emperors that exists now in us. Uh, in uh, this time period, there was like two different words for like uh, one that became a deity and, and one who just was a deity. And so what they did is they applied that to the emperors. They were, they were one who became a deity. So almost like a, a junior god. And they said, you must now, as Romans, we want your religious practice, no matter what it is, to center around worshiping uh, the governor, worshiping the emperor, worshiping the past and the history of this. Not only did they deify uh, the emperors of Rome, they actually turned Rome itself into a goddess to be worshipped because it was much easier than to disassociate that from seeming as narcissistic as worshipping the emperor itself. And so Roma was created. No, not the uh, nearly topped-ranked Italian football club. Uh, that was for Rob. Again, not here. Uh, but uh, the, the Roman uh, uh, imperial uh, sect and, and the worship thereof. It. Now, now, why is this important? Like, is this, you're, you're looking at me with glazed eyes. It's not boring. It's interesting, first of all. Uh, second, what has happened is that the Romans used this as a way to control culture. The Romans were not so interested, it seems, with even the glory that was contained in this. What they were concerned with was their stranglehold on control. And so what they did is they codified into law that no matter what your religious practice was, because they just plain didn't care. Like, you could live the way you live. They didn't care what happened in your body for the most part. All they cared about was their power and control. And so they said, you can have your religious practice. You can have this thing that brings validity to your life. All you need to do is repoint the destination of it, because it doesn't matter anyway, right? So they said, you can, you can celebrate Christmas, but what I want on the top of your tree is Caesar. You can uh, celebrate Hanukkah, but at the center of Hanukkah is going to be a cent to Roma. I'm using our modern terms for holidays, but this is truly what they did, is they repointed religious tradition to point towards Rome to keep the empire and the service of the empire at the forefront of everyone's minds that they might maintain their control. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about how the believers in Pergamum were struggling. Like, what were they not doing well? But I want you to hear this. In the face of that religious plurality, in the face of the cult of Rome, that, that for ceasing or denying the worship that was due to Rome, you could be put to death. In the face of that, in watching their friend, their brother, their father, their grandfather killed, they didn't deny their faith in Jesus. 
And, and so let me say this to you. Above all else, as you live and wade through our culture, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe in God and his son who came to redeem us in the face of everything in front of you, keep grounded in your faith in Jesus. Keep grounded in your belief in Jesus as the son of God in his redemptive kingdom that he has invited you into through your belief. We have to hold the tightest to that thing because it is so central. And they did that in Pergamum. And they were to be praised for that. We will see others in these chapters to follow that did not. While they maintained their faith in Jesus, there were things that began to slide in Pergamum. And we'll read about those in verse 14 through 16 where it says this. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. While for the core of the people in Pergamum, confession in Jesus and belief and worship of him alone remained steady. There was in this church tolerance for false teaching that Jesus saw as absolutely threatening to their witness for him. Uh, what happened in Pergamum is this, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and we're talking about really just one thing here, but he's kind of defining it in three different ways, because he's drawing pictures from the Old Testament, uh, he, he's drawing pictures from what they had actually seen, and then he's naming the sect of the Nicolaitans. It seems like um, when uh, this letter was written through Jesus' words and John's recounting, uh, there, there was a lot of caution as to not giving too much um, um, publicity to these false religions that are taking place, and so something don't get addressed as head-on. They get alluded to in a way that those people would understand it. So, so what was going on in Pergamum? Uh, what is he trying to speak into here? Well, what's happening is these teachings of the Nicolaitans were teachings which pulled people into idolatry and idolatrous practices. Uh, it was pulling people into worship another God. Uh, the concern here, and we know this from other places in the New Testament, the concern was not in, like, the meat that they were eating, right? There's this question that gets posed, like, well, can a believer eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol if, if they're not worshiping that idol? And Paul addresses this in the New Testament, talking about it in the sense of a stumbling block and how to navigate through this issue. Uh, what's happening here is not the concern over whether that meat meat is a stumbling block to someone else purely. It's that people were actually being pulled in to worship idols through the practice of eating these meat in these ceremonial worship sessions around a meal, as well as taking part in sexually immoral acts as an act of worship to these other deities. Grotesque sin and idolatry had started to seep into the church at Pergamum, and they were just turning a blind eye to it, Right? Uh, this is, uh, you can compare this to what was happening in Ephesus, right? So Ephesus is challenged for losing their first love for Jesus, for losing their passion for what God was doing in their midst, but they were good at stomping out false teaching. This is what the believers at Pergamum were struggling with. 
They were struggling to push these teachings out of their church. And so what Jesus says to them, and and this should feel startling to you, is he says, I need you to repent or I'm going to fight you with my sword. That should freak you out a little bit, okay? You don't want to go to toe-to-toe with Jesus, like, fist up, okay? Let alone if he has a sword in his hand, okay? He's saying, I will come and I will fight you with my sword. What is he trying to communicate to these believers? Um, This is not to be just a blind threat. This is, again, to reference what was happening in Rome. Jesus is saying, look, you live in this time of extreme plurality. You live in this time where forced emperor worship is happening in your midst. You live in this time where false teaching abounds, and you can live in any way you want to live, as long as ultimately it points to what culture has said will keep the peace. But what Jesus says is that Rome is not the judge. What Jesus says is that you, believers in Pergamum, ought to be less afraid of the sword of the Romans and more afraid of the sword of Jesus. That the judgment of God ought to mean more to you than the judgment of the culture in which you exist, even to the point of death. Jesus makes it clear that he too has power, infinitely beyond the power of the Roman government, and that he will wield this power. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, uh, the Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. That phrase is a joke. What the Roman peace was, was the Roman sword. What it meant to keep the peace in Rome was that if you stepped out of line, you would be slain. And so it may feel easy to criticize the people at Pergamum, right? It might feel easy to say, how could you let this exist in their midst, in your midst? Until you remember they watched Antipas die. Until you remember the level of extreme suffering and yet the level of expectation to keep the worship of Jesus central and to not let it be polluted by idol worship that they are called to. Church, it is easy for us to be captivated by cultural fear and ignore the opinion of the God of the universe. We are constantly pulled to give leeway on a myriad of issues in our culture that detract from or invite us in to worship things other than Jesus. Let me give you three. And I'm going to apologize because they all start with P, and that just happened. Okay. Of all the things I don't want to be, it's a church with everything starting with the same letter. Number one, politics. This cuts both ways. Cults of power around politics are nothing new. This is really the primary thing that's being dealt with in this time, is the cult of power. You and I are constantly pulled to align ourselves and give definition to who we are around political parties. Uh, We are heading into another joyous season of an election coming up constantly. It's always the the next election. It's driving me crazy. It's like Troy and freaking fall. It's like December 2, he's like, fall's coming. It's like, no. It's like we elect a president. It's like, hey, let's talk about 2028. It's like, no, let's shut up, okay? Let's move on. That's more about Troy. Um... But, like, we're heading into a period, and, like, if you, if you think this isn't going to be just like last time in terms of the amount of, like, uh, heat and anger and frustration, you're wrong. 
And you are going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to feel defined by this because there's a lot of money and a lot of noise to tell you that this is what's going to define you as an American, as a person who lives here. You're going to be tempted to be pulled into these things. You're going to be told that these things, and I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying don't participate in it. Please don't hear that. I'm saying you're going to be tempted to make this who you are because that serves the empire. You thinking that a core piece of who you are, you thinking that it is okay for your politics, no matter which way it cuts, to start to identify you and become a chief place in your life over who Jesus is, is what you're going to be told is the most important. You're going to be told it's so important that you ought to maybe just compromise pieces of who you are to give assent to this thing that it's just for one year is infinitely important until the next year when it's also important too. Second, plurality. Um, this is, again, directly what they were dealing with in Rome, but we deal with it in a different way. Uh, this is this idea that, like, whatever people say is what goes, right? Whatever popular opinion is, is what can be run into. And for us, that is plurality. Uh, whatever people say goes, it, as long as in some extent it doesn't affect anyone else, right? You're supposed to believe what you believe to the very core as long as it infringes on no one else. And so we exist in a time where almost every belief system seems to be just scattered with inconsistently, see, oxymorons and hyperbole. Everything is chiefly important and meaningless at the same time. Everything is fully definable and constantly changing. You live in a time where plurality is expected of you, that you would accept every belief that comes across your way, that everything would be treated with an equal amount of both mental energy uh, and respect. And while we are called to be a people that respect every single person, we are not called to be a people that respect every single idea. We are a people who believe in truth, a truth grounded in who God is. Lastly, possessions. We live in a time that is so consumeristic that it's hard to even take in. We live in a time, uh, we've been going through uh, this like Sabbath study and just some of the stats that keep coming up in it that just stagger me is like the amount of time that is spent trying to convince you that you need something else to be happy. The amount of energy. Um, I told Sarah this this week. Like, I, I watched one, I watched four seconds of an ad for a pair of jeans, okay, on, on like a social media thing. And now it is it. That is my universe, is just this pair of jeans. And I have long pressed and said not interested. But everywhere I go on the internet, I am followed by these jeans. And it's driving me crazy. And I am at the point where I'm like, maybe I'll buy them. Like, maybe that'll turn it off. Maybe I can be like, hey, you got me. I bought the jeans. And it's like, that's going to be worth $68 just to be rid of this, okay? Friends, you live in a time where, like, you are always only one vacation away, one car away, one investment away from being secure and happy for the rest of your life. And you are told that at every single turn. I, I invite you, like, just today, okay? 
And maybe it's your Sabbath. Like, maybe you've practiced Sabbath today. Maybe you've even taken less media. But, but just as you leave these doors and you drive to wherever you're going next, why don't you keep track of the number of messages that get sent to you about what you need to buy, possess, or invest in, okay? Just, just the billboards alone, okay? The ads on your Spotify if you're cheap, okay? How many things are going to tell you what you need to be happy today? Politics, plurality, and possessions. And you can name a thousand more things that are put in front of you that get added to your religion by our culture. That are like, hey, it's fine. You can be a Christian, right? You can be a Christian. Just don't let it affect the way you vote. You can be a believer. You can be a believer. Just don't say anything about what I believe. Sure, you can be a Christian. You want to be a Christian in a boat? It's better. all day long because the empire doesn't care church they don't care what you worship they care what controls you and so what Jesus wishes to say to these people is I don't just care how you worship I don't just care that you came to a church on a Sunday. I don't just care that you wear a cross around your neck. I don't care that you carry a Bible and go to a small group. I care about the core of who you are And so he says to them in 17, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I am the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on that stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives him. Jesus says to you, in a world surrounded by messaging and pressure that is distinctly oriented to the new empire of our day, he says, I have two things for you. He says, I have hidden manna for you. Remember this picture? Now the Israelites are enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years in an empire long past gone by the time this is written. They sit in Egypt building bricks, being beaten and murdered if they don't work hard enough. They exist in a time of famine like the world had never known, where all they could do is say, well, hey, we are captive and slaves in Egypt, but at least we have a little bread to eat. And what God says to them is, I'm going to free you. He sends his prophet to free the people. Moses, Moses frees the people of Israel. They cross the Red Sea. And then what happens? You remember? Their tummies grumble, okay? That's what happens. It's in, it's in Exodus. Read it, okay? It says, one Israelite guy was like, I'm a little hungry, right? And you know what they say? What they say almost instantly? They say, it'd be better if you never took us out of Egypt. At least we had food there. It's like such a sad story, right? They are ready to run back into enslavement because they have forgotten that the God that freed them from Egypt would provide bread for them. And so what God does is he says, hey, every night when you go to bed, here's what's going to happen. A complete nutritional element is going to fall from the sky and it's going to lay there for you on the ground. 
And you're going to walk out of your tent in the morning and you're going to gather enough fruit from the day and you're going to eat and be satisfied and be nourished. And tomorrow I'm going to do it time and time again. I'm going to do a miracle before you every morning to show you how I provide for you in a way that Pharaoh never could. And so what Jesus says to a people held captive, though not with chains, in another empire. He says, I have hidden manna for you. And that doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. But that doesn't mean you're not going to walk away from the empire of politics and plurality and possessions and not feel a little hungry from time to time. But what Jesus says is, is I, have, I have manna. I have hidden bread. I will completely provide for you. I will give you the steadiness of leadership and vision that you so desire. I will give you truth that you can attend to. I will give you everything that you truly need. We are to attend to God for his provision, even when we doubt it might not come even when it seems too difficult for him to provide in the empire that we live in in our moment. He says, I will also give you a white stone, and on this stone a new name is inscribed that no one will know except the one who receives it. Now this seems obscure, and you're like, ah, there's rocks on the stage, I know where this is going. You're right. It's a prop week. Get over it, okay? Uh, there are like six options of like what he's talking about here. Um, and I'm going to give you the two most prevalent ones uh, because it's probably, it's probably a combination. Like this is probably an illustration that stretches. And these things are clear. Two. The first is this. Uh, in ancient courts, the way that the final adjudication was often made was with a stone. If one was found guilty, they were handed a black stone, confirming their guilt and ushering in their punishment. If one was found innocent, they were handed a white stone, confirming and showing their innocence to all around them. Jesus says, in a world that seeks to convict you, in a world that will never let you off for your offense, in a world that seeks at every moment to capitalize on your worst moment, I will hand you a white stone. I will confirm your innocence in Christ, the ultimate judge who judges all things. The second is this. Uh, it was really common uh, that if I wanted to invite all of you to a banquet that I was hosting, um, like like a grand thing, like uh, think think like wedding feast, like ongoing days of a party, a, a big thing to get invited to in a time without Netflix, right? Like you were excited because this was something to do, right? They might even have torches you could see after dark. This is gonna be crazy, okay? It's a big deal. Uh, the most common way uh, in this era to invite someone was to send to their home a white stone with their name inscribed on it. And this white stone served as like when the gatekeeper at the party, that, that ancient Roman bouncer was like, do you get in or out? You provide that stone with your name and they take it and let you in. What Jesus says to you 
says, I have a stone with your name on it to permit you into the kingdom. I have a stone with your name on it. You're accepted. You can step into my place where I am king, where I am judge, where I control all things. And written on this stone isn't just your name, it's a new name. Because what is at the core of all of this is who are you going to be? Who are you? What is your identity? What Jesus reminds the believers at Pergamum is that because of their faith in Jesus, that they have held, they have held it. They have not denied their faith in Jesus. They have not denied his divinity. They are leaning on him for their belief. He says, hey, that's awesome. You can lean on me for your whole life. You might miss the party. You might lose your life, but I have a stone with your name on it, and you are invited into my kingdom. And it's a name no one else even knows, but I know it, and you know it. And so what we're going to do is I'm just going to invite you in a moment to come forward and we're going to receive two things. If your faith is in Jesus, if you are leaning on him as the sole provider of the forgiveness for your sins and your entry into the kingdom of God, if you align yourself with Jesus, if it is the sword of his mouth that cuts in your mind what is right and wrong, then you're invited to the party. You've been found innocent beyond all belief. And then we're going to experience manna because we're going to attend to the table in communion. It is no coincidence that the communion meal, the Lord's Supper, models Passover with bread, and in the story of that bread is told the story of the Exodus. These are lines of the Bible that are undeniable through time. And so I'm going to pray. And there's going to be some music that's going to play. I'm going to invite you to spend a moment and just, just pray quietly and just think about your life for a moment. And, and I don't want you to think about this in, in a way of like how mad God is at you or something or, or, or like the instant reforms that you need to make in your life. I, I want you to feel called to repentance, but I want in this moment for you to take a deep breath. And I want you to lean into the core of your belief and who Jesus is the new name that he has given you, and the innocence that he has proclaimed over you. And when you've had a minute to do that, I want you to come forward. Just take one of these and put it in your pocket. And, and you can keep it or not. You can put it somewhere. It doesn't really matter. And then you can approach the table on the side, receive the bread, the body of Jesus, the provision that he promised for you, the cup reminding you of his blood, which was poured to seal that new covenant and just spend some moments in worship. Uh, at some point in the next few moments, the band will come up and play, and you can stand and sing, but I want you to contemplate who you are in Christ and who it is ultimately who divides right from wrong and who you are in your life. So let's pray.